0: Well, if you had a time machine and you could go back in time to any previous decade, I wonder which decade would you choose? Whether it's the 90s or the 60s or perhaps even the 50s, I'm willing to bet that for most adults here today, there's some period of time from your past that you tend to think of as, let's be honest, it was a little bit of a simpler time, a happier time, and overall, a better time. And although we tend to think of older adults as the ones who love to reminisce and share stories about the good old days, it isn't just the elderly who find themselves yearning for the escape of the past. According to several polls, believe it or not, Generation Z, that is those who were born between 96 and 2007, are actually the most nostalgic generation. And although many of them weren't even alive during many of the eras they feel nostalgia for, these 17 to 28-year-olds nevertheless report feeling nostalgia for the 90s, the 80s, and even earlier decades than that. Perhaps you've noticed that many Gen Zers are gravitating towards the fashion, the music, and even the retro video games of yesteryear. Now, that might seem strange to you to feel nostalgia for an era that you never actually experience, but it's no mystery to me. Although Nikki and I have a pretty eclectic taste in music, for whatever reason, Nikki and I have always been fond of the music of the 40s. And although we certainly don't exclusively listen to music from that era, we own dozens and dozens of records that are in heavy rotation in our home. The same goes for our taste in television. I mean, outside of sports, we hardly ever watch any new programming on TV. And if you are able to somehow hack into our Alexa and listen in to our living room, you'd be much more likely to overhear the gravelly voices of a Red Fox or a B. Arthur than you would the voices of the Kardashians or whoever's popular on TV these days. So there you have it. I'm putting myself out there I'm admitting to you that I am a nostalgic person, but I'm curious this morning, how many people here would describe themselves as being nostalgic as well? Can we see a show of hands? Who here likes to take a stroll down memory lane? Many of you. Uh, Well, whether or not you would consider yourself to be somewhat nostalgic, I want us to take some time this morning to devote to this whole topic, this subject of nostalgia, because as comforting and sweet and warm it can be to stroll down memory lane, as wonderful as it is to reminisce about the good old days, the reality is I believe there are at least four potential pitfalls that we can fall into if we don't keep our nostalgia in check. So I wanna begin this morning by turning our attention to our first pitfall, and that is this. Nostalgia can distort and rewrite the past. According to the influential behavioral science website, decisionlab.com, social scientists have discovered a phenomenon that they call rosy retrospection bias. Let's see the definition up here on the screen. Rosy retrospection bias is our tendency to recall the past more fondly than the present, all else being equal. The website article continues and says Rosy retrospection is a product of how our brains process memory over time. One reason that older adults have a more rosy picture of the past, which for them is young adulthood, may be because those time periods coincide with more emotionally salient memories. Known as the reminiscence bump, the most vivid long-term memories are often sourced from the ages between 10 and 30, with a concentration of memories of personal events occurring during one's 20s, when many of life's significant moments occur. Well, years before social scientists discovered rosy retrospection bias, Way back in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, God's word actually warns us about the dangers of letting nostalgia go unchecked. That's right, in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 10, we read our verse for today. It says this in Ecclesiastes seven, verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I love how the New Living Translation renders this exact same verse. It puts it this way, don't long for the good old days, this is not wise. Well, to be clear here, certainly our passage is not condemning all reminiscing. It can be a wonderful, natural and normal thing to take a stroll down memory lane. There are ways to do this that are very healthy. I have a friend of mine who she was widowed some years ago, and although she's fully engaged in the world and in her life and in the present day, she frequently reads old letters that her husband once wrote to her. Our passage also is not saying or implying that every season of life is equally good and sweet. It's not saying that at all, but rather, it's issuing a warning. It's a warning that says, be careful. It's not wise to do too much reminiscing about the past. And I think one of the reasons why it is foolish and dangerous to reminisce about the past is simply this. We have a tendency to romanticize the past. We have a tendency to sort of have this selective memory that remembers the past, that is people, places, and things much more fondly than they actually were. In Numbers chapter 11, verses four through five, we read about the children of Israel. They were led out of bondage in Egypt, and they're wandering through the wilderness. They've not yet been brought into the promised land. And as they're dealing with the day-to-day life and wandering through the wilderness, I want you to notice how this rosy retrospection shows up in verses four and five of Numbers chapter 11. There we read, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Let that sink in. They're reminiscing about leeks and onions and garlic. At the same point in history, in Numbers chapter 14, verse three, we see that same kind of rosy retrospection again. Numbers 14, verse three, they ask the question, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? You read that and you think to yourself, what is going on here? God miraculously led them out of Egypt. He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're on the way to inherit that blessing. What are they doing? Simple. They're romanticizing the past. They're engaging in this rosy retrospection. When faced with the very real uncertainty and the threats of the present day, they kind of retreat in their minds and retreat in their hearts to the good old days, all the while forgetting that in the good old days, they were suffering under the yoke of slavery. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses nine through 10 describe life for humanity. It says this in Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 10. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, look, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. See, the writer there is saying, we tend to think things are new. We tend to think things are unprecedented, but In many, many ways, there's really nothing new under the sun. I love how this is put in Job chapter five, verse seven. Short verse, powerful verse. It packs a huge emotional punch, at least for me. Job chapter five, verse seven. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. I don't know how many of you love to hang out around a fire pit, or maybe you have a regular old fashioned fireplace in your home, but you just love to hang out and watch that wood get consumed and listen to and smell a good fire. But I love spending time outside at the fire pit. We do it several times throughout the summer and it's a wonderful thing to do. We usually start it in late afternoon and we like to see it burn into the evening. And if you've ever spent much time around a fire, you know that there are all these sparks. There's just this constant stream of sparks that go up and up and up. They don't float sideways or float down. They just go up and up and up. And in Job, what's being said here is simply this, just as sure as you know that when you light a fire, the sparks go up, you can be sure of this, man is born into trouble. Bottom line is this, whatever era you might look back on and think of as the good old days, whatever the golden years were, whatever your favorite decade or just point in time from your own past, whatever it is you cherish and think of so fondly, if you were to really slow down and take a sober historical analysis of both your own life and what was going out in the culture and the world, what was going on at that time, then you would know that there has always been trouble. There's always been uncertainty. There have always been threats. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. You know, since the time of Adam, there have been violence and wars and rumors of wars. There have been natural disasters. There have been corrupt governments. There've been threats to the economy. Nothing is new. That was one of the things that to me was so strange going through COVID. The word unprecedented was thrown around all the time. There was nothing unprecedented about it at all, if you know anything of history. And no matter what era you look back on fondly with those rose colored glasses, if you take a sober analysis of what was going on, it wasn't nearly as perfect as we might've remembered. And it's important, I think, for us to remind ourselves of that, because if we lose sight of the fact that there were challenges and troubles and uncertainty in the past, then I think it's inevitable we'll fall into our second pitfall, and that is this. Nostalgia can blind us to today's blessings. You know, one of the challenges with social media, I think, is how easily it can make us discontent Doesn't matter if it's a friend or a coworker or a celebrity. If you're looking at their life on social media, which is an airbrushed curated highlight reel, nothing boring, nothing bad, nothing discouraging is being posted. It's just highlight after highlight after highlight. If you watch enough of that in someone else's life, this exaggeratedly wonderful view of their life that they're putting out there, and then you compare it to your life, If you're anything like me, you tend to focus on what's missing, what could be better, what's negative about your own life. Then you've got this really unfair comparison. You've got this amazing fairy tale life that you think other people have. And then you compare your life, which you have an exaggeratedly negative view about. And it's no wonder so many people go through life feeling like they got the short end of the stick, feeling discontent and unhappy with their lot in life. Well, nostalgia can work much the same way. We have blessings in the current day. I hope you understand that. We have innumerable blessings each and every day right here in 2024. But if you're always comparing the present day to the glory days of the past, then it's gonna be totally lost on you how many blessings you have and how many reasons you have to be grateful and thankful for today. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, the Israelites, after they made it through the wilderness wanderings, they were brought into the land. They lived there for generations and generations and generations, but due to their wickedness, God sent prophets to them, warning them, hey, you need to repent and come back to me, but they didn't listen, so God sent more prophets. This went on for many, many, many decades, and eventually God said, enough. I'm gonna bring discipline to you, the nation of Israel. Here's what I'm gonna do. Your temple in Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed. And the vast majority of you are gonna be taken as slaves. You're gonna live in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But then after that, I'm gonna bring you back into the promised land. Now in our verse here in Ezra chapter three, verse 12, we have this moment in time where after 70 years of captivity, People are beginning to return to the land and they're beginning to establish the foundation of this second temple, this new temple, this new work that God is doing. But notice how some of the old timers responded in that moment. Ezra chapter three, verse 12. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, these are people that saw the first temple. They were probably small children, but they had memories of it before they were taken into captivity for 70 years. Those people that saw the glory of the first temple with their own eyes, when they saw the foundation of this house, that is the second temple that's now beginning to be rebuilt. It says many shouted aloud for joy, but they wept with a loud voice. You see what they're doing, don't you? They're taking the present with all of its blessings, with all the work of God, but they're holding it up to some glorious past moment in the rearview mirror. And as a result, the gratitude that should be there, the optimism and hope that should be there, is nowhere to be found. That way of interacting with the past and kind of falling to this pitfall of nostalgia is a really big temptation. Because no matter what season of life you are in right now, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have innumerable blessings to give thanks for. You have spiritual blessings for one that are ever present. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit guiding you and comforting you and teaching you. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, shepherding you attentively and carefully through your life. You have the hope and the certainty of the resurrection and being reunited with the loved ones that died in the Lord before you. We have these ever-present eternal spiritual blessings. Those really are the most important, but let's not lose sight of the fact that we also have some amazing physical and material blessings in 2024 as well. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says this. It says, every good gift, not just some, not just most, not just spiritual gifts, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So let's take a moment, and I wanna ask you to bear with me, and I just wanna point out two non-spiritual blessings that we have in 2024 that I think we should be thankful for. Number one, GPS. I am so grateful for the gift of GPS. This is surely a good and perfect gift from above. I wanna see a show of hands. How many people here remember life before GPS and before MapQuest? How many people here? That's many hands that are up. When I was a teenager in high school, I delivered pizza. And back then there was not only no GPS or smartphone, there was no MapQuest. And so. What we had to do when someone ordered a pizza is there's this giant, it looked like blueprints that an architect would use of different neighborhoods. And you'd have to flip to the neighborhood and then figure out how you were gonna get to deliver this pizza and then write it down on the back of a napkin and hope you didn't get lost. It was not fun. But God in his grace over the course of time eventually gave us the blessing of MapQuest. You guys remember MapQuest? Some of you might still use it. This was a website where you can put in your beginning point and your end destination, and then you could print it out amazingly, directions as to how to get where you wanted to go. The problem with that was if you ran into a detour or any sort of a problem, you were just sort of, good luck, You know, hope you can figure this out. Now we have GPS on our phones that frankly makes travel much less irritating and much more dependable. I for one am grateful for GPS. Here's a second one, and don't stone me, YouTube. I am actually grateful for YouTube, for all of its many downsides. There are some incredible blessings about YouTube. When I was younger, I wanted to learn to play the guitar. I was probably 11 or 12. And back then, if you wanted to learn to play the guitar, you had to get lessons for the most part. You either had to know someone that could teach you and was willing to teach you, or you had to pay for lessons. And we weren't really in a position to do that when I was growing up. I remember there was one coupon in the paper for two free guitar lessons. And so I clipped that out and then my mother drove me and I got two guitar lessons. That's it, I was left to my own to figure it out. But now, if you wanna learn the guitar, if you wanna learn how to invest, if you wanna learn how to make a good loaf of sourdough, whatever it is you wanna do, you can hop on YouTube. You could do home repairs and save all kinds of money, YouTube, is a blessing that I am grateful for. Now, why do I say all that? I simply say it to highlight the fact that here today, in 2024, we have so many blessings that we have received from God. And it is really important that we notice them and that we give thanks for them and that we recognize God's grace and blessing in our lives. Because my fear is, if all we do is look back on the past and reminisce about the good old days, if we refuse to open our eyes to the innumerable blessings that you and I have right now in 2024, well, if we just walk through life operating under that mode, it's only a matter of time before we're gonna get to our third pitfall we're gonna fall into, and that is this, nostalgia can turn us into crotchety, fault-finding grumblers. Now, before I go further with this point, I do wanna acknowledge something lest I be misunderstood. There are many people right here, right now, in this service who are going through real suffering. You're going through fresh loss. You're going through a real trial. You've lost a spouse recently. You've got a horrible diagnosis recently. You've lost your job. You've become estranged from your child. Whatever it might be, there are people here that are dealing with real, fresh, new trials and who are actually suffering. And if that's you, I wanna let you know, God not only allows us to bring our complaints to Him, He invites us to bring our complaints to Him. Psalm 142 verses one through two say this, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. But there's a big difference between the lament of Job and the bellyaching of Jonah. You see, when we're dealing with actual trials and actual suffering, it is normal and healthy for us to unburden ourselves, to complain, and to lament to God through prayer. But that is very different than wringing your hands through life, saying, ain't it awful, things ain't what they used to be, there's no hope for the future. You see, when we appoint ourselves the president of the Ain't It Awful Club, we're not just finding fault with our own lives. I know we think we are. We think we're complaining about that person or that circumstance, or maybe we think we've got some righteous indignation about what's going on out there in the world. But the reality is, folks, if we're going through life grumbling and we're not in one of those actual suffering trials, if we're just going through life day in and day out grumbling, we're probably not grumbling about our circumstances, we're probably grumbling against God. Numbers chapter six, verses three, six and seven, uh, put it this way. The Israelites, again, wandering in the wilderness. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now, speaking to Moses and to Aaron, but now you, Moses, you, Aaron, have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, by evening, you'll realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your complaints, catch this now, which are against him, not against us. You see, when we fail to take note of and give thanks for all of today's blessings, the good things of today, the good things of this era, if we just go through life blind to all the blessings of today, of the present, then this rot is gonna set into our heart. We're gonna go through life thinking we've got a bum deal. God has somehow done us wrong. And if that rot sets into your heart, it's only a matter of time before it metastasizes to your mouth and you begin to commit the wicked, wicked sin of grumbling. Now I realize we don't think grumbling is a wicked sin. We don't think it's that big of a deal. There's much bigger sins in our mind, but what's God's opinion on this? Jude, beginning in verse 15, says this, talks about the coming judgment of God on the ungodly. And the term ungodly is used four times here. He's gonna execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly, that's one, of all their deeds of ungodliness, that's two, that they've committed in such an ungodly, that's three, way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly, that's four, sinners have spoken against him. Well. What kind of things do these ungodly people do? Let's look at verse 16, the very next verse. In essence, Jude 15 and 16 is saying, God is coming to judge these ungodly, 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 ungodly people. Who are they? These are grumblers and malcontents. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses seven through 10, listen to the sins that God compares grumbling to. There it says, don't be idolaters, that's the sin of idolatry, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, that's the second sin, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single night. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And what's the third sin here? Nor grumble as some of them did and we're destroyed by the destroyer. You get the picture, I hope. In God's sight, grumbling is a wicked, heinous sin. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. He puts it in the same bucket as sexual immorality and idolatry. Because at the heart of grumbling is this sense that God has somehow done me wrong. And it overlooks all the goodness, all the mercy, all the grace and all the blessings that we not only have received in the past, but that we receive in the present day. Fourth and final pitfall of nostalgia I wanna share with you is this. Nostalgia can fill us with fear about the future. You see, if you spend too much time replaying the glory days in your mind and you're blind to all the blessings, all the good, all the advantages of today, then you'll start to view the world as being in this fixed state of decline. You'll start to see human history and the world as something that is just declining and decaying and going from bad to worse. Question for you, did you know that Rosie Retrospection has a close cousin? Rosie Retrospection has a partner in crime, a co-conspirator, and that co-conspirator is the prophet of doom. The prophet of doom would have you believe that back in the good old days, all was right with the world. God's benevolent hand was guiding history and our nation and culture and the world. But somehow along the way, something's changed and God has either given up on us and abandoned us or he's fallen asleep at the wheel or maybe he's just retired and moved down to Florida. The Puritan reformer Thomas Brooks once said this, I love this quote, despair is Satan's masterpiece. It carries men headlong to hell as the devils did the herd of swine into the deep. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do in our hearts and in our minds. He wants us to be given over to despair. He wants us to forfeit the joy that Christ gives us. The joy that Christ says is his joy that he has given us. He wants us to be stripped of our joy. He wants us to be stripped of our hope and to be just filled with fear and despair. He wants us to think that God has somehow become overwhelmed by the problems in our lives or the problems out there in the world and that the sky is falling and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Christ doesn't want you to believe that. I don't believe. You say, What are you talking about, Matt? Don't you read the headlines? Are you living life with your head buried in the sand? Look at the world, it's a sinking ship. Look at the culture, it's falling apart. Why shouldn't we despair? Why on earth should we have any joy or any hope or anything resembling optimism about the future? And in our closing minutes, I wanna simply share with you two reasons why we should not despair. The first is this. Although the world can be a scary place, we frequently overreact to current events. How many people here know the name Harold Camping? Does that ring any bells? Harold Camping, a few hands going up. Harold Camping was a radio preacher out of California that had a pretty large following. And I think perhaps early on, I don't know much about him, but I think early on was generally viewed as a fairly solid guy, I think. Well, he became one of these guys that started predicting when Armageddon was gonna start. And he predicted it, I think in 94. And of course that didn't happen, but he did predict it again. And he said that Armageddon was going to begin on May the 21st, 2011. May the 21st, 2011. And believe it or not, many of his followers became convinced of this. And so they quit their jobs. They sold their homes, they sold their possessions and gave their money to this ministry so that they could put signs on the subway, take out billboard ads, newspaper ads to warn people that judgment day was coming. Now, It is worth pointing out to my knowledge, Harold Camping did not sell his house, did not sell his things or quit his job, but make of that what you will. But anyways, he made these predictions and this was all in the news. This was talked about quite a lot. Many sneered at it, churches offered rebuttals to it, but there was this sense of what's gonna happen on May the 21st. Well, on May the 21st, I know exactly where I was. I was in Baptist Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina, Our second daughter had just been born a couple days earlier. And so I woke up in the hospital. And although I'm a pretty cynical, skeptical person, when I woke up on May 21st, I thought, well, I woke up, everything's fine. But let me put the TV on just in case I miss something here. I wanna see what's going on out here in the world. So I put the TV on and of course, nothing came of it. Well, Harold Camping said, I made a miscalculation. It's six months from now. He kicked it out to October. October came and went. And then eventually Harold Camping admitted Jesus actually knew what he was talking about when he said, no one knows the day or the hour. But I can tell you there was a lot of fear being whipped up in certain circles about this date. And I saw the same kind of fear over the end of the Mayan calendar to some extent. I saw the same kind of fear going through Y2K, if you're old enough to remember living through that. And it doesn't really matter if it's these doomsday predictions or technology, we tend to get spooked. We tend to overreact. You know, if you want a good laugh, one of the funniest things to do is read history on how the general public responded to new technology that was being invented in the past. It's hysterical. When the locomotive was invented, there were otherwise rational people that were terrified to get on a train because they said the human body was not made to go more than 30 miles per an hour. And if you do, you will literally melt. This was a belief. You will melt if you go faster than 30 miles per an hour. Another one was electricity coming into the home. There was a lot of fear over the safety of that. It was sort of viewed as the end of a simpler time, a slower time. Poets wrote about the fact that candlelight was being displaced by this new horrible electricity that wasn't nearly as beautiful and romantic. Elevators terrified people when they were invented, which makes sense. You know, Imagine the first elevator you're ever introduced to. Hey, get in this box, we're gonna close the door and you're gonna go up 30 flights. People were horrified at elevators. Telephones, when the telephone was invented, there was fear that not only might you get electrocuted from the phone, but that demons might somehow call you on the phone. And as those of you who know what spam calls are, maybe that one actually turned out to be true, I don't know. But you get the idea, the world can be a scary place, but people have always been put off and concerned by current events and by new technology. And I think we should be on guard because I think the enemy would love for us to just be hysterically worked up into a frenzy at each and every headline, because I think that would maybe make us a lot less joyful and make us a lot less committed to the task of planning for the future. Uh, There's a gentleman who lived in the seventh century by the name of Andrew of Caesarea. He was a bishop and he lived at a horrible time in human history. The time at which he lived, the bubonic plague went through the empire and killed one third of the empire. One out of every three people was killed by the bubonic plague also called the Justinian plague. And estimates go anywhere from like 19 million to hundred million people that died. Whatever the numbers are, it was horrific. And that's the background into which Andrew was born. As people began to die, many that died were in agriculture. And so there was an issue with food production. There weren't enough people to keep up with the farms because people were dying at such a quick rate. So that led to famine. Then there was severe weather, harsh winters that froze rivers that were really the only way you could transport things easily and get food to people that were in remote locations. Oh, but it gets worse. The Persians were attacking the Eastern Europe area at this time, and so many of the farmers that were left fled and abandoned their lands to go into the walled cities where they crowded together, hoping that they would be safer. Oh, also at the same time, there were many major earthquakes going on. And finally, Andrew's own city, Caesarea, was captured by barbarians in his lifetime. And as you can imagine, every single person, it seemed in that day was convinced, this is it. This is the end of the world. Christ is coming back any day now. But for whatever reason, Andrew of Caesarea had the humility or the grit or the hope or whatever it was to not just pack it in and say, well, I'm gonna go into the basement and read Augustine and just wait for the world to end. No, in spite of all that was going on around him, he still wrote. And I have this book on my bookshelf in my office. This is a book that Andrew of Caesarea wrote. It is the oldest commentary in Greek on the book of Revelation. This book went on to be hugely influential and formative and helpful for centuries of theologians and for the church after it. And I can't help but wonder what might have happened if Andrew would have given in to the panic and the fear. For that matter, what would have happened? After World War II, if those amazing men and women, those that led through that horrible time would have just packed it in, forfeited their joy, their hope, their optimism, how might the world look different? Christian, I believe the devil wants you to have no joy, no hope, and no optimism but we have every reason to have all three of those chiefly because of our last reason to not despair. And very quickly, this is the most important. Why should we not despair? Because Christ has the final say. Amen. Christ has the final say in this world. We're gonna close in just a moment by reading a passage from Romans chapter eight. But before we do that, I think it's important that we have a little bit of an understanding of what Paul is talking about, or we might fail to really grasp the comfort in these verses. See, in just a moment, we're gonna read about the peace of God or the peace of Christ. And that peace is not mere sentimentality. It's not just talking about an emotion when it speaks of the love of Christ for us. Rather, the love of Christ is something that is dynamic that has power, that accompanies the presence of Christ. It's it's a love that's working both in our lives as well as out there in the world. And it's important we realize the love of Christ, it isn't passive, it isn't inconsequential or ineffectual or trivial. No, when Paul writes of the love of Christ, he's writing of a love that takes action, that steps in, that intercedes and intervenes and has the final say in every matter under heaven. And so in conclusion, why should you not despair? Why should you have hope? Why should you have joy and optimism? I can think of no better answer than what we read in Romans chapter eight, verses 35 through 39. There Paul raises the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of our memories. We thank you that we can reflect on funny moments, heartwarming moments, cherished moments from our past we thank you for the photos and the stories and just the memories we have and the ability to reflect on them and cherish them and treasure them in our hearts father it's a gift i believe to be able to do that but lord although it's a gift it can really get off the rails if we fail to remember that even in those days there was uncertainty and troubles and trials but people still found joy and found hope and raised, were raised above it all by your spirit. God, in the present day, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the countless blessings that we have? And will you help us to not only take notice of them, but to feel that in our hearts and to express our gratitude with our mouths to you. We have so much to be grateful for chiefly spiritually in Christ, but also the many, many blessings we enjoy in our day. And finally, Father, we ask that you would please give us a sure confidence in the future. Help us remember that we have every reason to hope that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Christ, that you hold the world in your hands and that you will guide the future just as you guided the past. God, we thank you that you're at work in the world. We thank you that you're at work in our hearts. May we keep our heads down, be faithful to your mission in the world and have a smile on our face born from a true joy in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.